Let's read Exodus 29. We'll start off in verse 1 through 9. It says, And this is what you shall do to them, to hollow them for the ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour, and you shall put them in one basket, and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put the tunic on Aaron, and the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head, and put the holy crown on the turban, and you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. You shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. So you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. So everything that's about to take place, right? It says in verse 1 that this was to hollow them for the ministry, right? It's not that they're going to carve a hole out of each and every one of these men carve a little chunk of meat out. That's not what it's about. It's to set them apart in order to be used by God. It was to make them holy and, again, ready to be used by God. And we've been talking over these past few weeks how each and every one of us are New Testament priests. Every single one of us here, if you're here and you're saying, I'm going to heaven when I die, God says that you are a priest. If you're here, you're saying you're not going to burn in heaven for all of eternity. God says you are a priest to him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, You are, speaking to us, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained mercy. So if the Lord has pulled you from darkness into light, if God has given you that mercy that you had never tasted of before, he says you are a royal priest. He says that you are a holy nation, his own special people. So just as these priests needed to go through this ceremony in order to be holy and ready to be used by God, We're going to see for us, there's a ceremony, there's a process that should be taking place in our lives so that we would be ready for the work of God. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, we could turn there real quick. You keep your uh, finger or pencil highlighter there in Exodus 29, Revelation, last book in the Bible, chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. We'll reference this verse twice, and it tells us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, It speaks to us of the mighty work of Jesus in our lives. And again, what he has done for us and how we are a new creation in him. We're not supposed to look like our former selves. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, it says, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins, In his own blood. And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Again, through the work of Jesus Christ, through his washing and cleansing us of our sins by his blood, he has made us kings and priests to God. Again, we need to be holy and set apart for holy use. There should be a before and after for each and every one of us, right? Maybe your business has a before and after, right? Some of you have different businesses. Maybe you have a company where you work on cars, right? Auto detailing. Hopefully the before and after picture look different, right? If not, no one's going to come to your business, right? You're hearing your strength coach and the guy looks exactly the same before and after. Look at what's happened a year after working with me. I think he gained some weight, right? You're not going to go to that guy. So again, for us, is there a before and an after? Because before we were dead, we were dead, no mercy, no grace, no love of God. And afterwards, we have all this. We should be drastically different. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you're there in Revelation, a couple pages to the left. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And here you have Paul, who was Pharisee of the Pharisees, a man who knew the law knew about the priesthood, knew about the sacrifices, knew about the temple, and he's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. And look at the words that he uses here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 15, he tells us to be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Again, our desire in view of all that God has done for us is that we would be a vessel of honor, ready to be used by God. And he tells us here the way that we can be this vessel of honor, ready to be used by God, is if we cleanse ourselves from the latter. There is a cleansing that needs to take place in our lives if we want to be used by God. We need to be cleansed. Right in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. Now a couple pages from your right from 2 Timothy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Peter, he carries on the same idea. He says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. 
We're going to see in a moment that for these priests, there was a cleansing that had to happen, an anointing that had to happen, and then three different sacrifices that had to happen before they could start working for the Lord. For us, in view of 2 Timothy 2 and 1 Peter chapter 1, the first thing is for us to stay away from sin. In 1 Peter, it was to stay away from idle and profane babblings. To watch what we're talking about. Watch what we're conversing about. It also said there to flee from sin. To run away from those things that put our Lord and Savior upon the cross. We need to stay away from those things. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he started off with the idea to tighten up our minds. To roll up our sleeves and be ready for action for the Lord. That we would have our minds ready. Lord, I want to work for you. Lord, I want to serve you. But we have to have the right mindset. After we're ready for action, Peter tells us to be sober. That's to take a serious look at your life. Right? When was the last time you took a step back and you took a serious look at your life? What do you have to show for whatever amount of years you've been on this rock, right? What's coming up? What have you prepared? What have you set up? We need to take a serious look at our life and then we need to have self-control. That's what Peter's talking about in being sober. To not allow anything to cloud our judgment. Right? You could think of liquor or drugs right away, right? How that messes up our judgment. But there are other things that mess up our judgment. When we're just consumed in the things in this world, it clouds our judgment. When we're consumed in politics, it clouds our judgment. We can be consumed with different things in our life that lead us to not having self-control. Peter tells us, be sober. Peter continued and he said, rest your hope on the grace of Jesus. There's a reality that we need to hold dear to our hearts in order to be ready to be used by God that I will never do enough to deserve the family of God. We will never do enough to deserve being a part of this family. I will never do enough to deserve my future home in heaven. It's all by his grace. It's all by his mercy. Uh, one of the pastors I was listening to, he put it this way. He said, we're all just a bunch of beggars showing other beggars where the bread is. That's all we're doing. As believers, as pastors, as more mature believers or less mature believers, all we are is a bunch of beggars saying, hey, this is where they have the free food, right? That's what we're doing. If our hope in deserving to be a part of this family is my work or my knowledge of scripture or my connections or my church attendance or how many years I've served, you're going to fail. You're not ready to be used by God. If you think that you're going to deserve heaven because you've done X, Y, or Z, you're never going to be ready to serve God. And the last thing that Peter says there is to be obedient children. Stop living according to this world and be obedient to God and his word. Be obedient to the Lord. Be that obedient child to the Lord. I'm so grateful for the parents I had. And oftentimes, probably more often than not, right? I have this conversation with my dad. Dad, I want to do this. My friends are doing this. My friends are going here. They're doing this. They don't have to do this. And it was always the same answer. Your friends don't live in this house, right? God didn't put your friends as me being their father, right? And the same is true for us. If we're saying, I'm a part of the family of God, I'm going to be living in heaven, in God, my Father's house, got to live by his rules. 
And there's many believers that we say, hey, I want heaven. Yeah, I don't want to burn in hell for all of eternity, but I'm going to live according to this world. And you'll never be able to be used by God in that way. You're going to be a black eye on Christianity and on church in all reality. Back to Exodus 29, we start breaking down the chapter again. The whole reason, the whole point for this whole ceremony that was about to take place was that these priests would be set apart, ready to be used by God. It started off that they had to take one young bull, And two rams without blemish, three different types of sacrifices, all with perfect animals. And the bull was only one year old. The idea, the picture here for us is that even Jesus, his death happened at 33 years of age. Now, if you're here and you're young, you say, woof, that's super old, 33, right? If you're closer to 33, you're like, "Eh, I don't know how old that is, right? But some of you guys are past 33, right? You're saying that's super young. Some of you would give anything to be 33 once again, right? And how God has Jesus sacrificed at such a young age. In professional sports, they say the peak is at 33 years of age, right? 32, 33 years old. And that's when God had Jesus sacrificed. And here the animals, they were all young. It wasn't the priest bringing this old bull, right? That no legs in the back on a wheelchair, right? And that's what they're pushing up onto the altar. A perfect, spotless animal perfect and young. In verse 2 and verse 3, it talks about the unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil. And when we looked at the table of showbread, we saw how God's desire is that we would have fellowship with him, that we would break bread with him. That's God's desire for us, is that we would have unity with him. In this culture, there would be no sign of unity greater than having someone over and eating with them. Having a meal with them. You were saying we are unified. We are together as one if I'm inviting you over to eat with me. And the type of bread that God had the priests make, it was with unleavened bread. There was no yeast in it at all. The other day I was in the mood to make some pizza. So I made some pizza and I'm getting the dough ready and it called for five grams of yeast. And I put that on my scale. This is a tiny bit. There's no way this is going to be enough, right? like less than a half a teaspoon of yeast. I was like, all right, let's go with it. Follow the science, right? Put it in the dough, got it working. Three hours later, I was like, whoa, this thing's three times the size, right? And just how a tiny bit of sin in our lives, it's going to multiply. That half a teaspoon of sin in our lives after a week of unrepentance, after a month of unrepentance, after three months of unrepentance, you look back at your life and you say, how did I get here, right? You look at the life of Saul, where he starts and where he dies. He dies going to a medium. He dies going to Miss Chloe, right? Saying, can you get Samuel to talk to me? God's not answering me. Again, what happened to him? He allowed that little bit of sinful yeast in his life, and it just continued to grow and continued to spread. If we want to have fellowship with God, we can't have sin reigning in our life. Got to throw that out. Got to get rid of that. We've talked about fellowship a lot, and we throw that term around a lot in Christianity, right? What does that even mean? Hanging out after church, right? Fellowshipping, right? Eating dinner together, eating together, having fun. That's what fellowship means. Fellowship, it's a friendly relationship existing among people. It's a sharing of an interest or feeling. 
It's a group with similar interests. That's what fellowship really means, is that you have a friendly relationship with someone. You share a common interest or feeling with someone, that you're in a group of people with similar interests. And the question for us is, do we really have a friendly relationship with God? Right? Do we really share the same interest that God shares? Do we really share the same feelings that God shares when he looks at Scripture, when he looks at this world, when he looks at the sin in this world? Or are we broken from God and in all reality we have a lot of disagreements with God? Then there can't be fellowship there. There is the exact opposite of the definition of fellowship. So again, for us to not just think that fellowship, yeah, it's me just hanging out with God after service, right? It's me just going out to eat after service with God. No, having true fellowship with God, it means that you share the same interests and feelings that God does, that we would have that. That's his desire for us. In verse 4, Aaron and his sons, they're going to be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And it's God speaking to Moses and he says, you shall wash them with water. Again, this is a big ceremony that's about to take place. But this ceremonial washing, it was taking place out in the open for the whole nation of Israel to see. It didn't happen inside the tabernacle. It didn't happen in secrecy among the priests. But it happened out in the open in front of everyone. And in our lives, the cleansing of our sins should be seen by all the people around us. It shouldn't just be something in secret that, yeah, it's just between me and the Lord. Only me and God know how far I've come. Your coworkers, your friends, your family members, the body of Christ should be able to look at your life out in the open and say, wow, look at the work that God has done. It's not supposed to be something in secret. And oftentimes as believers, we're too busy hiding our failures, right? There's some of us even here right now that we're really struggling with certain things, but we're just too prideful to ask somebody else for help. We're just too proudful to ask somebody else for advice, even though we're really, really struggling. And that's why God gives us the body of Christ so that we can lean on one another again out in the open. It's also interesting that they did not wash themselves, but they were washed first and foremost by Moses, their go-in-between. And how Jesus, he's our go-in-between. He's the one that's going to wash us, right? We read Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. That we are washed by his blood. We are washed and cleansed of our sins. And this would be a one-time ceremony. They would be washed one time from Moses or from the future high priest later on for the next 1,500 years. And then from there on out, they themselves would cleanse their hands and cleanse their feet. Let's go to John chapter 13. And here we get a very similar picture with Jesus, right? He's our high priest He's our sacrifice. He's so many things for us. And in John chapter 13, Jesus sets up a feast and he invites his 12 disciples to come to a party, right? Come to a dinner that he has set up. But now there's a great, what's the word here? Cultural norm. All these guys, right? From they were young boys, they were raised to always wash their feet before they entered a home, especially for dinner. And I was trying to think, what are the cultural norms for us, right? Growing up in a Hispanic family, my grandmother always warned me to never go in the pool after eating anything, right? So it's a cultural norm. The other cultural norm for me was to say hi to everyone and anyone, right? If I would walk into the house and I didn't say hi to my grandma, she said, did you sleep in the same bed as me last night, right? And that was just a cultural norm, right? 
And for these 12 disciples, since they were young boys, they all knew you don't go into the house unless you've washed your feet. You don't sit down to eat dinner with people unless you washed your feet. Again, they didn't have chairs like us. They would all be leaning on their sides, and my feet wouldn't be in the guy next to me's face while he's eating, right? So in their culture, they all knew that they had to wash their feet. But the lowest servant within the home, it was his job to wash the feet. So what's the problem with the 12 disciples? None of them view themselves as the lowest servant. So that's why they are all unwilling to wash the feet of the guys that they've been living the last three years of their life with. So they're invited by Jesus, right? He's the leader in a sense of the home. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the chosen one. He invites them over to dinner. He sees none of them have washed their feet. So what does Jesus do? He goes, he gets the bowl to wash. He gets the rag and he starts washing their feet one by one, right? Talk about, right, swallowing that humility there. John chapter 13, verse 8, Peter, right, always quick to speak, slow to listen, slow to think. Peter tells him in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus. Jesus answers him and he says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter says to them, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. God, if that's the case, Jesus, give me a bubble bath right here, right now, right? <laughs> and then in verse 10, Jesus says to him, he who is bathed, need only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. He's talking about Judas there. So again, we get our first washing when we step into this relationship with Jesus Christ. We're saying, God, your sacrifice on the cross is great enough to forgive me and to cleanse me from my sins. No matter what my sins are no matter what they were God Jesus his sacrifice is enough to wash us of all of our sins right we read Revelation 1 verse 5 and 6 earlier that he loved us he washed us from our sins in his own blood and then now he makes us kings and priests to God his father so the first cleansing it's Jesus Christ and he cleanses us from our sins but there's a couple more washings that we need to go through if we want to be ready to be used by God if you can, you could turn to Titus chapter 3. If your fingers are tired, you could just stay put and listen. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Again, here Paul, he's writing to Timothy, and he's going to speak to him about the importance of being washed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can wash us, can renew us, can regenerate our spirit so that we'll be more and more ready to be used by God. Titus, a couple pages to the left from Revelation, it tells us Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 6, it says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who believe in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. That again, through the Holy Spirit working in our lives, we can be renewed and there can be a regeneration of our spirit. 
We're tired, we're weak, we're exhausted. We're seeing that we're really snappy, right? We're really quick to blow up and explode over the smallest things. Got to step aside to the corner, take some time in prayer. Lord, just fill me with your Holy Spirit. Right? It tells us here that he poured it out on us abundantly. We're going to see in a moment how when we look at anointing oil, right? The pastors here will get a little bit of oil and put it on your forehead. In this time period, putting oil on you is more like the Gatorade bath after a Super Bowl, right? Where they'll just dump the whole bath of oil all over your head. And it'll go down your head, down your beard, all the way down to the ends of your robe. And that's how much Holy Spirit God wants to pour out on us. But in our pride, we're just like, nah, I'm good, right? It's like that meme with little guys in the house, everything's burning all around them. Nah, I'm good, God. Everything's fine. Everything's fine, Lord. I'm arguing with my spouse every five seconds. Everything is fine, right? I get annoyed every time I have to go to church. Everything is fine, God. I go to church. I just want to run out. Everything is fine, God. I got it. Everything's okay. No, we need to be washed by the Holy Spirit. You can just write down these scriptures. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. The last washing we'll look at is the washing of God's word. And now we need to be constantly We get washed by Jesus Christ in his blood when we accept him as our Lord and Savior. Then we need to be washed by the Holy Spirit. And then we need to be constantly being washed by the word of God. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 26, this is speaking to the husbands and what we should be doing for our wives. But the truth remains the same. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. We need to be taking in God's word so that it would cleanse us. Again, our hands, our feet, we're still going to get dirty walking around this world. We're in this world, but we're not of it. But there's going to be things that want to stick to us as we're dealing with unbelievers, as we're talking to people, as we're on social media, as we're listening to the news, as we're watching commercials. There's things that are going to want to stick to us, and that's why we need to wash ourselves with God's word. Some of us, we may be here saying, hey, I listen to plenty of teachings, but I still feel dirty. I still don't feel right. Psalm 119 verse 9 tells us, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. The question is, are you obeying God's word? Right? Maybe you're here and saying, I still feel icky. I still feel dirty. I still feel like I'm right, dirty from the things of this world. Are you taking heed to God's word, right? Is your doctor any worse of a doctor if you never listen to his advice, right? You say, oh, I don't like that doctor. I'm still in super bad shape, still in super bad health. Have you listened to anything your doctor told you, right? No, I've done the exact opposite. Eh, Maybe he's a really good doctor. You just don't listen to him, right? The same is true for us. God's word, it's holy, it's pure. It's withstood the test of time. Hundreds, centuries, right? Centuries and centuries of people coming against it. And it's still here today. It's going to stand. So again, we need to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, washed by the Holy Spirit, and a continual washing with the Word of God that we'd be ready to do this holy work for the Lord. After the washing takes place, we go back to Exodus 29. God has a special set of garments laid out for us. Again, I was a youth pastor for many years. And um, man... During youth camps, those bathrooms would get gross, right? Get absolutely disgusting. But thank God, most of the kids, I can't say all the kids, most of the kids, they put on new clothes after they got washed, right? 
I hope none of you here, if you can only afford one set of clothes, come talk to us. We want to hook you up. But I hope none of you here, you take a nice hot shower and you just get the same clothes, right? Just whip them out and just put on the same exact set of clothes, right? That'd be disgusting. That'd be gross, right? Oftentimes, what do we do? We throw them to the corner, right? I have my dirty hamper in a corner, so I just chuck that thing as hard as I can in the corner, right? At the end of camp, some of those clothes should be burned is really what should happen, right? And the same idea is what God has for us all throughout Scripture. The clothing that was going to be put on was the holy clothing we looked at last week. That they had to have God-filled, Holy Spirit-filled people in order to make this clothing, right? Imagine walking into a tailor and saying, do you have any Holy Spirit-filled tailors here, right? I need a really special suit. I need a really special dress here, right? After being washed, they would take on these priestly garments, They wouldn't put on their old clothes. These priests would even put on other sets of clothes that they owned. They didn't even put on their nicest or most luxurious outfit or robe. They could only put on the garments which God had provided for them. Charles Spurgeon, he says, these garments were provided for them. They were at no expense in buying them. The priests didn't have to pay for them. Nor any labor in weaving them. The priests, they didn't have to weave their own clothes nor any skill in making them. They had simply to put them on. And you, dear child of God, are to put on the garments which Jesus Christ has provided for you at his own cost. And he freely bestows it upon you out of boundless love. Again, the same ideal is for us. Christ is the one that died for us, sanctifies us. Christ is the one that washes us. And now Christ is the one that has set up a beautiful set of clothes for us to put on. We can't afford it. We can't make it. We don't have the skill enough to do it. But we need the faith to put it on and live in it. It's a joy to have so many marriages within the church that are around for decades and decades. And there's some of them that the guy takes a shower and he comes out and his clothes are already laid out on the bed for him, right? He doesn't have to think about it, right? And that's what the Lord does with us. After he cleanses us, the garments are laid out for us. The question is, will we put those on? Or are we that middle schooler at camp that just puts on the same old clothes, right? And says, ah, nobody else notices, right? Revelation chapter 3 verse 5, you just write this one down. It tells us, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Again, family, if we by faith hold on to Jesus Christ and overcome sin, overcome the temptations of this life and live a life of overcoming, we will be clothed by Jesus and in Jesus that at the end of the age, when we get to heaven, the righteousness, the clothing we will wear It's going to be that of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at a couple scriptures and a list, right? A laundry list, if you would, of clothing that we are to put on as believers. The first one is found in Romans chapter 13. We could turn there. Romans chapter 13. And we're going to see that common idea. The only way that you should, right? Maybe there are people out there. But the only way you should put on new clothes or clean clothes is if you've been bathed, right? If you've been washed, requiring that we throw off those old clothes, those old habits, that former way of life, that former lifestyle, that former mindset. In Romans chapter 13, verse 12 through 14, 
it tells us the night is far spent. The day is at hand, right? Jesus is coming at any moment. It says, therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. First things we're supposed to put on is the armor of light and we're supposed to put on Jesus Christ. We're supposed to put on an armor saying, Lord, I'm ready and I'm in this battle for you. My former lifestyle, my former works of darkness, it's now what I'm living against. I'm not supposed to play with the enemy or pet the enemy or pretend like it's okay. No, I'm supposed to put on this armor of light. And then we're supposed to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just the bracelet, but the mindset, right? What would the Lord have me do in this situation? What's the best way that I can represent who Jesus Christ is? In Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 22 through 24, same idea here. Next thing we're supposed to put on, it's the new man. Supposed to cast off the old man and put on the new man. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, it tells us that you put off concerning your former conduct. The old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, we need to put off the old man and put on the new man. One of the great problems within Christianity today is it's simply self-help that Jesus right through hard work and Jesus one day you're going to be good enough to be how Jesus wants you to be but that's nowhere found in scripture Jesus says that we're to put on the new man and who created the new man it's not me through my hard work and discipline no the new man was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness our job is not to work hard enough to get here our job is to live in faith that we are there God's already done the work. And now my job is to walk in faith and be abiding in Jesus Christ. And you'll get there. Many times people, oh, I don't, I don't feel it, right? And I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't feel like doing lots of things, right? Sometimes people are like, oh, I don't do these things because I'm not good at that. I'm not good at forgiving people. I'm not good at loving people. I'm not good at being kind, right? But we need to walk in the way that God has called us to walk. We need to put on the new man, cast off the old man. Don't go pushing your dad's after service, right? Cast off the old man, the former way of life. Another one you can write down, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. I'm sure many of the guys know this one. It's to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Next thing we need to put on, it's the whole armor of God. We're in a war. We're in a battle. And Satan, he's going to throw different temptations at us. He's going to throw different arrows at us. And we need to put on the armor of God so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. Finally, Colossians chapter 3. A couple of pages to the right there if you're still in Ephesians. And in Colossians chapter 3, here we get a pretty large list of the clothing. What should we put on after we've been cleansed by Christ? Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. It tells us, Therefore... 
as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Again, after we've been cleansing the blood of Christ, we need to put on, right? This is a long list. Tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, being willing to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. And then it tells us, above all these things, put on love. Again, we need to allow Christ to cleanse us, but now we need to make a decision. I'm going to live in the truths of Scripture. I'm going to choose to live this way, right? Oftentimes we think love is just an emotion. No, love is a decision. I am choosing to do this. I am choosing to put Amanda and the kids above me. That's what true love is. It's not, oh, sometimes I feel it, sometimes I don't, right? This weekend, you're going to be praying for me. Uh, I'm solo dolo with the three kids, right? I'm hanging out with all three of them, studying, doing all these things. Amanda, she's out and about. And there's many times where I don't feel like being that great of a dad, right? I feel like throwing some snacks in a room, putting a TV in a room, and locking the door, right? That's right what I feel. <laughs> I don't do that. I don't do that. But that's oftentimes what I feel like doing. But love is saying, man, I am choosing to be the best that I can be. Be the best example that I can be to them, even when they drive me absolutely insane, right? That's what love is. Back to Exodus 29, after they've been washed, after they put on these new garments, now they get anointed with oil. In verse 7 through 9, it speaks of them taking the anointing oil and pouring it on their head and that this is going to consecrate them. This is what's going to make them holy, right? And we know throughout these past couple weeks that oil is a representation of the Holy Spirit. You guys are good. You guys know, right? Oil throughout Scripture is a representation of the Holy Spirit. I know I mentioned it earlier, but again, when we come up front for prayer, we get a tiny bit of oil, put a little bit on the forehead, and we pray for you. But the idea in Scripture was to take a cup, to take a pitcher of oil and pour it over the heads of these men. In Psalm 133, verse 1 and 2, kind of a famous Scripture that some of us think gets weird really quick, right? Verse 1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down the beard, the beard of Aaron running down the edge of his garments. Again, the idea for us is that we'd be so filled with the Holy Spirit that it would be running from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. Again, family, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you filled with Him? Or is your walk with Christ just like everything is grinding, right? All the gears are just grinding one on another. Sometimes you wake up, I'm starting to get a little bit older, and I wake up and every joint, right? I can hear every noise, every joint, right? Seems like I need some oil to wake up and to walk around. And there's some believers that it seems like they need a lot of oil, right? Their speech, the groove of just being in God's word and being in fellowship and being serving, they're just totally out of alignment. Got to take a step back and say, Lord, fill me once again. Lord, is there any sin in my life? Lord, am I quenching the Holy Spirit with my lifestyle? And that's why I feel so out of whack. That's why I feel so out of alignment in my relationship and walk with you. And again, making that decision Set aside those things and say, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit once again. 
Now we look at three different types of sacrifices. The first one is the sin offering. Verse 10 through 11, it says, You shall have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Again, this is a one-year-old bull. And now Aaron and his sons would sacrifice this young animal to take the place of their sins. We saw last week, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. We know that the wages of sin is death. The only way we can get our sins appealed, right, our sins washed over in this season, now through Jesus Christ we can completely cleanse and set apart and be made brand new from our sins The only way we can get a pardon from our sins and what we deserve is by the shedding of blood. What this is showing us is that no one is capable of serving the Lord and the Lord's people unless he first and foremost is going to the Lord for his own sins. That's the way all of this is. It starts with me first, right? It all starts with me. The only way you can serve your family is if you are the one Going to the Lord first and foremost, right? It was only some parents when I was a youth leader, none of the parents today. But sometimes parents, they drop off their kids at youth and they say, hey, you guys make him holy. You guys make him righteous, right? But the parents, they're not really focused on the things of God. It's not going to work that way. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets, right? He says, woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah starts off with his own sin. When we look at the world around us, when we look at our church family, the sin that should be the largest in our eyes should be that of our own. Lord, my own sin. Lord, how can you be so gracious to me? How can you be so kind to me? Lord, how can I keep falling for this and choosing to do this? This is how it all starts. And they would start off by putting their hands on the head of the bull. And it wasn't a light touch, but it was a pressing down on the head of this animal. Charles Spurgeon, he says that it gives us the idea of pressing hard upon the bull's head. They each came one and leaned upon the victim, loading him with their burden, signifying their acceptance of its substitution, their joy that the Lord would accept that victim instead of them. When they put their hands on the bull, they made a confession of sin. And what does Jesus tell us that we should do with our burdens, right? He says, give them to him. Give them to him and lay them all on him. That's the way we should be living is that we're laying our sins, we're laying our burdens on Christ because he is the substitution for our sin. If you're still here and you're living with guilt from your past life, you're not living the way that Christ wants you to live. He wants you to lay that all at his feet. He's the victim willing to accept that burden upon him. And with this first sacrifice on the altar, this would be the theme over and over and over again. Every day at the tabernacle, every day at the temple for the next 1,500 years until Jesus would come. Three words, want to give you the definitions for them. You guys are scholars of the Bible, you should know these. The first one is substitution, second one is transference, and the last one is propitiation. 
Now they're big words. I don't know if you use them in your SAT essay or not. But that word substitution, it's to recognize my personal guilt and that the forgiveness of my sins has occurred at the expense of the death of an innocent. Again, in this time period, these priests, Aaron and his sons, they would recognize their own personal guilt and that their sins would be forgiven at the expense of this innocent one-year-old bull. That's what they were recognizing. For us today, it's for us to recognize my personal guilt and that the forgiveness of my sins has occurred at the expense of the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect one, right? As John the Baptist says, behold the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. That's substitution. The next word is transference. It's that my forgiveness and my salvation has occurred because the Lord has made a way for my sin to be transferred to the innocent other. Again, these priests, as they're putting their hands hard, pressing down upon the head of that bull as they're killing it, they're saying, Lord, my forgiveness and my salvation has occurred because you have made a way for my sin to be transferred to this animal. And again, God has made a way for our sins to be transferred upon Jesus Christ at the cross. There's only one time in all the Gospels that Jesus does not cry out to God as Father. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that moment on the cross, all of our sins, right? The average 79 years, I think yesterday or today, the oldest living American, 116 years old, she passed away. But take all the sins of over 116 years or 80 years of our lives, right? And Jesus Christ bore all of them upon the cross. And who's the one that made a way for that? Who's the one that made the plan for that? It's God. It's God and God alone, that final word, propitiation. It's the full and satisfying payment for our sins. Jesus is that full and satisfying payment for our sins. We don't still need to work to get our sins cleansed. We don't need to do certain things or crawl a certain distance or prove certain things. It's paid in full. He said upon the cross, it is finished, paid in full. So again, for us, do we hold these things dear? As we read through Scripture, do we say, Lord, thank you that you allowed. Lord, thank you that you made a way for this, right? One of the common questions people ask is, how can a loving God send people to hell, right? How can a loving God send people to hell? What they don't realize is the loving God made a plan and a pathway and the payment and the sacrifice to give us the option of heaven. He's the one that did it. We didn't come up with it. Adam and Eve didn't come up with it. He's the one that has created it. Again, right, we were at the beach yesterday for the baptism, incredible, incredible morning. But imagine if there's someone drowning and the lifeguard comes out there, he's got the jet ski, he's throwing life vests at him, a rope at him, he's trying to save him and the guy just says no, throws a life vest back at him, cuts the line of the jet ski, right, and the guy ends up dying. You say, man, that's a bad lifeguard, right? See, that person's just filled with pride. That person is just filled with pride. They are unwilling to accept the one way of salvation, the one way to be saved from drowning in the water. And the same is true for us and all of humanity. It's not that a loving God sends people to hell. It's that prideful people oppose God and say they want nothing to do with him, and those people will be in hell. Back to Exodus chapter 29, verse 12 through 14. It says they're going to take some of the blood of the bull. They're going to put it on the horns of the altar with their finger. And they're going to pour all the blood besides the base of the altar. 
You shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, two kidneys, the fat that's on them, and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull, with its skin and its offal, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. And here we just get another amazing picture of Jesus Christ. You can write down Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10 through 13. And it tells us that the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Again, Jesus, his sacrifice in a sense started there on the temple mount. The work the Pharisees did, the people beating him, bruising him, ripping out his beard, it all started there at the temple mount. But where they crucified him and led him, right, the road that he had to walk down upon that he collapsed was to lead him outside the walls of the city. So now anyone walking into Jerusalem would see what happens when you disobey Rome. So now when you would walk in, you say, hey, I'm going to do whatever Rome tells me to do. But Jesus, he's their sacrifice. He's their put to death on the cross outside the gate. Again, how these animals, everything happening in Exodus, it's just a picture of Jesus Christ. The other idea for us is that what God wants consumed on the altar is everything on the inside. What does the Lord desire from us? Everything on the inside, right? Our heart, our mind, our soul, our spirit. But what should we do with the flesh? What should we do with that agent inside of us that keeps trying to get us to live down the old path? Burn it. Take it outside and kill it. Leave no room for the flesh. Don't leave any room to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Take it outside and beat it behind the barnyard, right? That's what we should be doing. But that person that keeps wanting us to go back to the former way of life. The second sacrifice is the burnt offering. Verse 15 through 18, it says, You shall also take one ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram, and you shall take its blood and sprinkle it all around on the altar. Then you shall cut the ram in pieces, wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and with its head, and you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Two things here, right? First, we look at the example of Jesus with this. Again, you'd have this perfect animal, perfect ram. Think about the cutest little sheep you've ever seen, right? And now it's brought here to be sacrificed upon the altar, looking nothing like it once did. It once looked perfect, but at this point it's been killed, it's been gutted, it's been chopped up in pieces and placed back upon the altar. And the same is true of Jesus Christ. It tells us that he was beaten beyond human recognition, that his beard was ripped out, he was beaten, they put a bag over his head and they beat him probably out of consciousness over and over again. And he went through all of this for us. He got whipped with the cat of nine tails right all over his back. That open wound upon the back of the cross going up and down that rough wood for us. He did not look human while he was up there on the cross for us. Again, the picture of this sacrifice. This perfect ram, after the priest was done with it, looked nothing like its former self. For, again, the sins, for the sacrifice of the priest, Jesus doing that for us. 
The second idea for us, this whole burnt offering, David Guzek says the ram was completely burnt before the Lord with its blood sprinkled upon the altar. The burnt offering said we have failed to give our all to God. This animal now gives its all to make up for our failure. And we decide to live now giving our all even as this animal who dies in our place. Family, are you giving God your all? Are you giving Him your all? He gave His all for us. He gave the very best that He had. Gave His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Are we giving Him our all? I'd imagine you come to a potluck, right? And you come, you bring a whole filet mignon, right? And you chop it up, you have it already. Your partner comes and if you bring Easy Mac, you got no problems here. But imagine you just bring a bunch of Easy Mac, right? You swung by and say, hey, I got ice. How are you going to feel? You're going to feel like, great, yeah, what am I going to do with all this filet, right? Put some ice on it? That's not going to help anything, right? And how do we treat the Lord? He sacrifices everything for us. Again, it's amazing how we're going through First Peter on Wednesday nights. We should give Him our all. We shouldn't hold anything back. We are to be that sacrifice wholly devoted to the Lord. And the order of these sacrifices is important. Because first and foremost was the sin, was the guilt being removed from these priests. Because until our sin and guilt has been removed, there's no acceptable service that we can perform for God. Again, the idea was that after their sin had been removed and after this ram made up for their past, not giving God their all, now these priests, their lives and their service would be wholly devoted to God. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, you can write it down if you're quick, you can turn there. Paul, again, having the mindset, he knows everything that's going on. It says, I beseech you therefore. It says, I'm begging you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Again, he's given us his best, he's given us his everything. Are we holding back? Are you saying, oh, I'm only going to give you a certain amount? Right? Imagine you find the girl or the guy of your dreams and you say, oh, I want to give you all my heart. And she comes back and says, oh, I'll give you half of mine. Right? <laughs> you see, there's this other guy. I really like him too, so I'll give you half. I'll give him half, right? I hope you'd end it right there, right? And many of us, that's how we treat the Lord. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for giving me your all. Thank you for dying. Thank you for being perfect, stepping down from heaven to live here for me. But I'm going to give you half my life. I'm going to give you a quarter of my life. Again, that we'd be that living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Many times we shake our fist at God and we say, God, what's your will for my life? You could write down Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It says it right there, right? Let's read through it again. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You're here, maybe you came this morning, this afternoon, and you say, God, what's your will for my life? Is that you would live for him. That you would give him your all and see how he'll take care of you. You can write down Luke 16, verse 13. Jesus tells us, you cannot serve two masters. 
You will either hate one and love the other, or else you're going to be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't say, Lord, I want to serve you, but I want to serve wherever money goes, that's where I'm going to go. Lord, I love you, but wherever the girl of my dreams goes, that's where I'm going to go. Lord, I love you, but doesn't work that way. The final sacrifice in verse 19 is known as the consecration offering or the peace offering. It tells us you shall take the other ram and Aaron and his son. They're going to put their hands once again on the head of the ram. You're going to kill the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, on the tip of the right ear of his sons, and on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot and sprinkle the blood all around the altar. And you shall take some of the blood that's on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments, on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be hallowed and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Again, the idea was the first one is to take our guilt. Second one is saying, Lord, I'm wholly devoting my life to you, giving my whole life to you. The last one is that we are now becoming one with the sacrifice. We're saying, Lord, I'm a part of this sacrifice. What's being given to you, Lord, is a part of my life. Being going to say, Jesus, as you were given, I'm giving my life. I'm going to be holy and set apart for you. Again, as they took the blood, they put it in specific places, right? The ear, the thumb. I like the King James Version. It says your great toe. If you want a cool name for your big toe, uh, your great toe, right? And the idea of blood on the ear is that all of their senses would be dedicated to the Lord. Again, thank God he didn't say put the blood in your eyeballs, right? Put the blood up your nose. Put the blood down your mouth. Our God, he's a clean God, right? Just, hey, you're going to take the blood and you're just going to put it on your earlobe that everything they would see, everything they would hear, everything they would speak would be dedicated unto the Lord. They'd put it on their thumb of their dominant hand, right? That everything they would touch, everything they would work on, everything they would do would be dedicated to the Lord. And finally, they put it on their great toe, right? Everywhere they would go, everywhere they would walk, everywhere they would find themselves would be dedicated unto the Lord. And after they're saying, Lord, I'm giving you my life, all that I do is for you, Verse 22 through 25, it says you're going to take the fat of the ram, the fat of the tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys and the fat on them, the right thigh, one loaf of bread, one cake made with oil, and one wafer from the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. And you should put all these in the hands of Aaron, in the hands of his sons. You shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord, and you shall receive them back from their hands and burn them on the altar as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma before the Lord. It is an offering made by fire to the Lord. They were to give the very best of the animal first and foremost to God. The very best of God, and I agree with him, it's the fat of the animal, right? It's those pieces of meat with fat in them. You can think of a ribeye or New York strip, things like that. That is what's devoted to the Lord. That's the best of the best, and we are to give God our best. Then in verse 26, it says you're going to take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration, wave it as a wave offering. It's a signifying that they're giving it up before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And from the ram of consecration, you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering which is waved, and the thigh of the heave offering, which is raised, of that which is for Aaron, and of that which is for his sons. It shall be from the children of Israel for Aaron and his sons by a statute forever. 
for it is a heave offering. When we go to Leviticus, we'll look at all different types of offerings. It shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel, from the sacrifices of their peace offerings. That is their heave offering to the Lord. Again, if you want fellowship with God, you want relationship with God, it's through this path. You're accepting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sins. You're saying, God, you could take my whole life. Everything I do is for you. Lord, everything I do, everything I touch, Lord, is holy and set apart from you. And then in this same offering, the priest, in a sense, would be sharing a meal with God. God is saying, hey, we're going to share the same patriala all together, right? I get these cuts of meat, you get these cuts of meat, and we're going to have fellowship with one another. That's, again, God's desire for us. The other idea here was for God to take care of the Levites. You see, a couple months ago, we saw how Levi, one of the 12 sons of Israel, right? One of the 12 sons of Jacob, lived a terrible life, made terrible life choices for God. And now his dad, on his deathbed, cursed him. Talk about a bad day. Your dad dies and he curses you on his deathbed, right? So with this curse, he had no land for him in Israel. We have 50 states in the U.S., think of 12 states in Israel, and now the Levites had no land for them. But because of the work that the Levites are going to be willing to do in chapter 32, now God says, I will be your inheritance. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to be the one to take care of you. You don't have land to prepare your own fields or raise your own cattle. I, the Lord, am going to be bringing food to you each and every day. That we trust the Lord with our lives and know that he's going to care for us. Verse 29 and 30. The holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them. That son who becomes priest in his place shall put them on for seven days when he enters the tabernacle of meeting to minister in the holy place. And you shall take the ram of the consecration, boil its flesh in the holy place. Then Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram, the bread that's in the basket, By the door of the tabernacle of meeting, they shall eat those things with which the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them. But an outsider shall not eat them because they are holy. Again, the only way to have fellowship with God is being an insider, right? But he invites everyone. He invites everyone to come and be an insider with him. But that's the only way. Verse 34, if any flesh of the consecration offerings or of the bread remains until morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it's holy. Some of you guys that don't like leftovers, verse 34, that's your life verse, right? The Lord is saying, I want to care for you each and every day. Every day there's going to be fresh meat. Every day there's going to be fresh bread. Just trust in me, live for me. And I'm going to take care of you. Verse 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I've commanded you. Seven days you shall consecrate them. And you shall offer a bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. You shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it. And you shall anoint it to sanctify it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it. And the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar must be Holy. Verse 38, now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. One lamb you're going to offer in the morning, the other lamb you're going to offer at twilight. With the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed, with one-fourth of a hint of pressed oil, and one-fourth of a hint of wine as a drink offering. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer with it the grain offering and the drink offering as in the morning, 
for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Again, every single day, for the sins of the nation, for the sins of the people, a bull is offered and two lambs are offered, one in the morning, one at night, all preparing the path, 1,500 years, for the day that Jesus would come. And he would be the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Finish reading the chapter. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord where I will meet you to speak with you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Again, for us, how God, He desires to dwell with us. He desires to break bread with us. He desires to have that unity and that friendship with us. But it has to be through that path, the path of Jesus Christ, the path of saying, Lord, my whole life is yours. I'm not holding anything back. And Lord, I'm going to live set apart for you. I am different from this world. You've called me to be different.